Oh, Lord Jesus, this Christmas, would you help us to get past the busyness and that surface-level cheer? Would you allow us to catch a glimpse of you, our risen King, the King of heaven that came, that was born to die and to rise and reign forever? Would you help our hearts to believe that and be strengthened by that this morning? Would you do that by your word, we pray in your mighty name. Amen. Too bad, you say, that Martin Luther King Jr. died so young. I feel that way too. But as I have said many times before, it isn't how long one lives, but how well. Those words were spoken by Minister Benjamin Mays at a somber funeral service for Martin Luther King Jr. At the age of 39, the unquestioned head of the civil rights movement in the process of turning the world upside down, changing the world for the better, he was shot down. A life so virtuous snuffed out. It was a difficult day of mourning, no doubt. And yet, as you reflect on it, as tragic as that day was, realize that death does not play favorites. It's not just the virtuous that die. So do the villains. A very different man met long, long before by the name of Genghis Khan. He was turning the world upside down in a very different sort of way, conquering the known world, a, a brutal, vicious killer. And then as suddenly as he rose, he died. Turns out, whether you are virtuous or a villain, whether you're a prince or a pauper, whether you're pretty or whether you're plain, all of us have the same basic problem. One day, we will die. Merry Christmas, by the way. <laughs> you may think that isn't fitting for a Sunday morning before Christmas, until you ask yourself, what is Christmas really about? Why is it so important for us to have peace on earth, if not for the fact that peace wasn't already here? Why is it that we need joy from heaven if this world wasn't filled with sorrows? Chief among them is the fact that we all die. Oh, it's been going on since the first generations of humanity. People are born, they live, they die, and their light is extinguished from this world. It happens again and again through the decades, generation to generation, all of us with this same finality, this same sobriety that one day we will die. You can understand then why some people would have been unsuspecting 2,000 years ago. There was a man named Jesus of Nazareth. On a Friday, he was strung up and killed by a group of Roman soldiers you can be forgiven for, uh, you can forgive them for thinking, well, he's just another light snuffed out of this world, another man who died. Oh, sure, there were some amazing things about his life. He was an incredible teacher. He was virtuous. There was even some miracles people claimed he did. Yet at the end of the day, he ended up the same place all the rest of us do. Dead as a doornail in a tomb. But that's what makes what happened on a Sunday 2,000 years ago, a Sunday we call Easter, 
so amazing. Because on that day, the man, Jesus of Nazareth, came back to life. And in so doing, he changed the world as we know it. And friend, this Christmas, he can change your life. What we see in front of us this Sunday before Christmas is the account of Jesus rising from the dead to become the risen king. We'll see that in in three scenes this morning. Three scenes will show us the glory of the risen king and how that can change your life forever. The first scene is in 1 through 12. We'll see the mystery of an empty tomb. The empty tomb in 1 through 10, sorry. Then in 11 through 18, we'll see the glory of the risen Lord. We'll see the risen Lord, 11 through 18. And then finally in 19 through 23, we'll see how it can actually change your life. We'll see ascent people, people that are empowered and sent to be messengers of Jesus to this world. Let's begin by looking in 1 through 10 at the mystery of the empty tomb. If you're with us last Sunday, we saw the very crucifixion of Jesus. He was strung up by Roman soldiers. He he died an agonizing, painful death, even though he had done nothing to deserve it. But it turned out that was all part of his plan from the beginning. Even from the time he was born as a baby in Bethlehem, he was born one day to die. And die he did. He uttered one last sermon, a one-word sermon. It is finished, three words in English, one in the original Greek. In that moment, his life was finished. Jesus died and he was placed into a tomb. And then we pick the narrative up in John 20, verse 1. It's a, a dark day, a day where his disciples' hearts are filled with the darkness of despair. Look at verse 1. Now, it's the first day of the week. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Mary was one of the four women that was with Jesus at the cross. Now she comes to his tomb. She's coming to pay her respects. She's brought some spices with her to to give Jesus a a proper sort of burial. Now, John tells us it's still dark, which is one way of telling us it was early Sunday morning, but it's more than that. Remember, John has been consistently talking about light and darkness in spiritual terms. This means that as she comes, there's a dark cloud of despair hanging over her, a cloud that's about to be pierced by the light of hope about what's about to happen as she meets Jesus. She arrives at the tomb, and and that's where we see our first surprise. She arrives there and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She saw the stone had been taken away. The first surprise is that the tomb is open. Now, the reason that's a surprise is because tombs back in those days were not the sort of things that accidentally popped open. They would have gigantic, uh, the type of tombs Jesus was in would have a gigantic stone put in front of it. It would take several men to roll it forward and back. We knew from the other gospels that are in fact soldiers guarding the tomb. They had a vested interest to make sure no one got into it. And yet here she is in the darkness of Sunday morning. She sees the stone rolled away and she thinks the worst has happened. Salt in her wounds. Not only has her teacher died, not only was he mistreated, but he's been a victim of grave robbers. You you can see that in verse two. 
she runs and goes to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved. That's John, the one writing this. And she says to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. Grave robbing was a real problem back then. There were lots of valuable things in tombs that you could get your hands on. The bodies would have been wrapped up a bit like how we think of a mummy in valuable linen cloth. If you get your hands on that, that's quite valuable. But even more so, uh, as they did with Jesus' body, very often they would take expensive perfumes and expensive spices. And sometimes they'd put dozens and dozens of pounds of them on the body to minimize the smell. Now, those things were extremely expensive, and a grave robber would have been very interested in that. Well, not only that, some people also would have various baubles and trinkets, you know, various things that you might be able to steal. It was such a problem that we actually have edicts from Roman uh, governors imposing extremely high penalties if anyone's caught grave robbing. So it's understandable she would think the worst at this moment. Insult to injury, salt in the wound. Her despair is multiplied. The grave of Jesus has been desecrated. But that brings us to the second shock in 3 through 7. It's not just that the tomb's open. It's that the tomb is empty. Peter and John go toward the, the tomb at the, hearing the news. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. They have an impromptu foot race that breaks out to see who can get there first. And um, Peter, I'm sure to this day, is kicking himself for losing that race. He only gets to hear about it anytime John 20 is read. Now, I don't know if it's because Peter just went a little heavy on the pita and hummus the night before, or, or John is just younger than Peter. Whatever reason, John gets there first, and Peter's lagging behind a bit. Now, when John gets there, he peeks in in verse 5, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Well, that's the first thing that doesn't seem right. If grave robbers had come, they would have taken the linen cloths. If they were just people trying to steal Jesus's body, the linen cloths wouldn't be lying there. Maybe they'd be strewn all about. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Why are the linen cloths there? Peter catches up in verse six. And Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So Peter, ever the brash, bold one, just goes barging right in when he arrives. And he notices the linen cloths, but then he notices this other detail. The face cloth of Jesus is folded up like a napkin after you're done using it. Like someone that sets aside a handkerchief very carefully because it's no longer in use. Now, the way that those face cloths were used, you can imagine that the corpse would have something like a turban with a, a chin strap put on it. It was to keep the jaw and the skull intact as the body decomposed. Now, if someone were stealing the body or robbing the grave, they certainly wouldn't have taken the time to fold up that turban into a nice, neat little square off to the side. Now, none of this makes sense, which leads to the third shocking thing that happens. The miracle of faith. 
John goes in after Peter. Verse 8, then the other disciple who had, received, who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. John sees everything in front of him, and Peter surely knew something was up, but Peter couldn't quite make the connection. John, on the other hand, John realizes that this can mean only one thing. Jesus must be alive. John's faith at this point is not full. Now, we're told right after that, they didn't understand the scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. There's so much yet that had to be explained by Jesus himself and the Holy Spirit. And yet, one thing is true in this moment. In John's heart, there's genuine faith. He may not understand how or why, but he knows Jesus is alive. From there, the disciples go back to their homes, having heard the witness of the empty tomb. Now, friends, we are 2,000 years since that Easter Sunday morning, but do you realize that the empty tomb is still convincing people that Jesus is alive today? The empty tomb stands as one of the most compelling pieces of evidence that the man Jesus of Nazareth who died came back to life. There was a man that started off as an atheist who set out on a project to debunk Christianity. The man's name was Lee Strobel. And, you know, as he dug into the evidence that he could find from the Bible and from other writings in those days, the resurrection of Jesus became one of the things that convinced him that this, in fact, must be true. The empty tomb is compelling evidence. Uh, I'll just give you one little detail related to this. If you look at how Jesus' enemies spoke about him in his day and the days after, they all assume that the tomb was empty on that day. They come up with stories about how the disciples must have stolen the body or how it must be some big conspiracy. All of it assumes that the tomb was actually empty because, friend, if you were trying to destroy Christianity as it was spreading, if you wanted to nip this Jesus thing right in the bud, all you had to do was pull out the body of Jesus. If it was in the tomb and everyone knew where it was, Christianity would never have taken off. But friend, if the tomb is empty then there's no limit how far the message of Jesus could spread. That if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, maybe you've heard people say that miracles like someone coming back from the dead could never really happen. Now, if that's you this morning, friend, I invite you, look at the evidence of the empty tomb. Take the time to actually ask for yourself, could this really be true. Uh, if you are here this morning and that's you, I actually have Lee Strobel's book uh, where he has a chapter all about the resurrection and he goes through his own journey to belief. I'd love to give you that book. Just come see me after the service. Well, it's one thing to say that the tomb is empty, but that leaves the question of, is he really alive? And that's what we see in the second scene, verses 11 through 18, the risen Lord, the glory of the risen Lord. Mary comes back to the tomb in verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Maybe you've experienced this yourself, this pull during your grief to revisit a place tied to someone that you've lost. Maybe it's an old house where a loved one used to live. Sometimes it's a spot on the highway where someone was ripped from our lives. 
We may not understand why, but somehow in our grief, we feel called back to that place. Mary comes back to the tomb of Jesus, overwhelmed in the fullness of the despair, the darkness of her heart, not knowing that dawn is about to break, that her sorrow is about to be turned to joy. As she weeps there, she maybe because the sun is starting to come up and she can just get a little glimpse inside the tomb. Or who knows why? But for whatever reason, she decides to go and look in herself. She stooped and she looked in the tomb. And what does she see? Verse 12. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. Angels in the Bible are God's messengers and his agents. When, when angels show up, it means God is on the cusp of doing something huge or he's already done it. Mary sees two angels. I couldn't help but notice the connection to the Christmas story this morning. Oh, you, you know, that the, as Jesus was born as a baby, the king of heaven incarnated, angels announced his coming. And here he is taking on his immortal life and his resurrection and angels once again pave the way. Mary sees these two angels and then even more shockingly, they speak to her. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? The way that's written, it's obvious. It's a little bit of a rebuke. You should not be weeping. That only makes sense if Jesus is in fact alive, which of course he is. She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. She's still concerned for the body of Jesus. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. I don't know why Mary turned around. Maybe she had one of those tickles, those shivers that go up your spine when you get the feeling someone is watching you. One time I had been working late, uh, a job, and I came home to a dark house, and I didn't bother to turn on the lights. I just walked into the kitchen, and then I got the feeling that someone was watching me, and I sort of slowly started turning, and then, bam, my brother jumped out of nowhere like a ninja. (laughs) Just scared me half to death, and he's lucky I didn't take a swing at him in that moment. Um... But you know that feeling where someone's watching you? Maybe that was going on. We, we don't know for sure. But for whatever reason, whether it was that or the angels are just like, hey, behind you. She turns around. And what does she see? Well, she sees Jesus. But she doesn't recognize him. She thinks he's the gardener. She says, uh, 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 verse 13, the woman, why are you weeping? She said to him, They've taken away my Lord. I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She asked him two questions. He asked her two questions. He repeats the question of the angels. Same implication. You should not be weeping. And then he asks a question so profound that it crosses 2,000 years and requires each of us to answer. Whom are you seeking? Friend, who are you seeking this Christmas? Are you seeking family and friends? Are you seeking a romantic partner? Are you seeking self-fulfillment? Or are you seeking the king 
whom Christmas is about, the risen Jesus. She doesn't understand what she's seeing. Her response shows that. She says to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. She thinks he's the gardener. She's trying desperately to find where his body is out of love and a pure heart. What she doesn't know is she is just a moment away from that very heart being invaded by perfect peace from heaven itself. As Jesus reveals himself to her and changes her life forever. All it takes is one word. One word. Her name. Mary. Mary. And in a word, she knows exactly who is speaking to her. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. There's no doubt who it is anymore. I know it's Jesus, and he is alive. You can't help but think of what Jesus said back in John 10. He said he's the good shepherd, that he knows each and every one of his sheep by name, and that when he calls them by name, they know the shepherd's voice. Friend, when you hear the Savior utter your name, your heart comes to life. In that moment, her sorrow was immediately replaced with joy. Whether she understood everything or not, she knew this much. Jesus is alive, and that must mean it's all going to be all right. Now, verse 17 is one of the most difficult interpretive knots to untie in the whole Bible. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now, the difficulty in this verse is twofold. One is, what does he mean by don't cling to me? And then second, what does he mean by I have not yet ascended? Now, both of those uh, questions have a multitude of different answers. And when you combine those two different answers, you end up with interpretive spaghetti. Um, I will spare you the details except to say I think the most, the, 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 the most plausible explanation that makes the most sense is that Jesus is telling her, you don't have to worry I'm about to leave. You don't have to hang on to my ankle to keep me from walking away. I'm not going to disappear in front of you. Now, Jesus had 40 more days where he would repeatedly show himself to the various disciples. He hadn't yet ascended to the Father, but he had begun that process. But when his final departure came, it would be abundantly clear to his disciples when it was coming. He was telling Mary, this joy that you have, it's not going to run away. You don't have to hold on to my ankle. Uh, maybe you had a, a small one in your house that gets the feeling that you might be leaving and so they latch onto your leg for dear life maybe they'll say where are you going or in my daughter's case she'll say you're not going anywhere <laughs> Jesus is telling her you don't have to worry there'll be plenty of time for your joy to be fulfilled my fellowship with you is only beginning and then after that in one of the most touching moments in scripture Jesus commissions Mary as his first evangelist of the resurrection. Now, this wouldn't have made any sense back during the, those days in terms of social norms. A woman was not allowed to have testimony in a legal sense. They were not the person you would, a woman was not a person you would choose if you wanted credibility in the world's eyes. And yet, look, 
Jesus sends her to bring this message to the disciples. And she does it. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. What dignity, what love that Jesus would let Mary be the first one to gossip the good news that Jesus is risen. Well, big news like that can't be kept to yourself, and Mary's not the only one that will get in on that act. And that's what we see in our third and final scene here. We see the sent people in 19 through 23. Jesus appears to the gathered disciples who are full of fear. They still don't understand what's going on, and yet Jesus is about to bring them his perfect peace. Verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, that's Sunday night, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Now, Jesus had appeared to multiple disciples by this point. They must have had a sense that something was happening, and yet they were still fearful. They still were thinking that they're going to have the same thing happen to them that happened to Jesus. So the door is locked as if that was safety that their God could not provide. And in the midst of that, Jesus shows up. He shows up and he greets them and commands them all at once. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Now, at one level, that's just a greeting. It's just a way of of saying, hi, guys, it's good to see you. Peace be with you would be a common way to greet people. You can see that greeting gets picked up and used by Christians in the uh, New Testament letters. Paul would often open with a, 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 a sort of request for God to grant you peace. And yet realize at this moment, if there was one thing in the heart of his disciples, peace was not it. So it's both a greeting and a command and a prophecy. Because Jesus is fulfilling the words he gave to them earlier. Remember back in chapter 16, he told them, your hearts will be filled with sorrow, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. And on that day, no one will take your joy from you. Look what happens. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus shows them unmistakable proof that he is, in fact, alive. He shows them his his nail marks in his hands. If that were all that was, they might think, maybe it's some other man that was crucified and survived. But then he shows them his wound in his side, a wound unique to Jesus. And in that moment, they know the Lord is risen. Jesus, he is alive. Jesus said to them again in verse 21, peace be with you. And then he commissions them to be his witnesses. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now that's not difficult to understand. Jesus had told them they would be his witnesses in the world. He's been preparing them for this fact. But what he does next in verse 22 is difficult to understand. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. That sounds a little nasty. And then he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. 
Now that's odd for multiple reasons. Why is Jesus breathing on someone? Again, that doesn't seem socially normal to us. And then why does he say receive the Holy Spirit? If you know the rest of your Bible, you know that the Holy Spirit doesn't come on his disciples in power until after his ascension at Pentecost. So what in the world is going on here? Well, I think Jesus is doing a little acted parable telling them about how they will be his witnesses with the Holy Spirit's coming upon them. The, in the, both Greek and Hebrew, the word for breath, for wind, and for spirit are all the same word. So in Jesus breathing on them and then saying, receive the Holy Spirit, he's showing them how it is they will be his disciples. They will, they will have the Holy Spirit sent from heaven to live within them and empower them for this task. Now he tells them in verse 22 what this will look like. I'm sorry, verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So the way they will accomplish this mission is through the preaching of the gospel. Do you realize every time you tell someone that Jesus is the one born in Bethlehem that lived the perfect life and that it died as a sacrifice for sins on the cross, that he rose from the dead to prove that his sacrifice was accepted, and now he can offer you forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. Every time you tell someone that gospel message, that in that moment, their sins will either be forgiven if they accept it, or their sins will be confirmed on them if they reject it. Jesus lays out the blueprint for what we are to be about as his disciples. We are to be gossiping the good news of the gospel and either freeing sinners from the bondage to sin or watching them remain with God's condemnation already upon them. Jesus sends his disciples out and that mission has continued to this day, even this Sunday before Christmas. We get to be his messengers, taking the good news of the resurrected king to all the people he brings into our path. Now, friends, you know how you can use this Christmas time, this holiday, as an opportunity to live this out as a disciple of Jesus. Now, one way you can do it is just by starting with uh, going up to a relative and saying, hey, you know, I really love Christmas. Can I tell you why? If they say yes, you have a wide open opportunity. Tell them who Jesus is and why it's such a good thing that he came to bring peace to this earth. Or maybe you do it the opposite way. You say, hey, you know, I wonder, do you know what Christmas is about? Would you want to come to church with me on Christmas Eve? Maybe you hold up one of these little cards. You want to come to church with me on Christmas Eve and find out? You have a whole holiday built around the coming of Jesus to this world. He came to this world as a baby in Bethlehem, but his mission was confirmed and accomplished in his resurrection from the dead. And this Christmas, we get to be his ambassadors to whoever God brings our way. Now, friends, as important as that is, it's also important for us to realize the wider implications for the resurrection and what it means for you and I. If Jesus has risen from the dead, it changes everything. Not just the fact that we are to be his witnesses. There's many, many implications I could draw out. I will limit myself to three this morning. If Jesus has risen from the dead, it means that he is vindicated in everything that he claimed. 
If you have any lingering doubts, whether something Jesus taught or something he claimed about himself is true, at the resurrection, God once and for all put his stamp of approval on Jesus. If Jesus says there's no way to salvation except through him, the resurrection proves it. If Jesus claims you can be forgiven from your sins if you believe in him, the resurrection proves it. If Jesus says he can give you perfect peace, friend, as hard as that may be to believe in a hard season of life, him rising from the dead proves it. Second implication. Jesus rising from the dead proves that he has secured eternal life. It proves that he has secured eternal life. The cycle of being born, of living, of dying, that cycle now has been broken. Jesus not only died, he came back to life. And in doing so, he overcame death itself. The theologian Herman Boving said it this way. He said, if Christ did not arise physically, then death, then sin, then he who had the power over death has not been defeated. In that case, actually, not Christ, but Satan came out the victor. According to scripture, the significance of the physical resurrection of Christ is inexhaustibly rich. Jesus rising from the dead guarantees you, friend, that when he promises you that you can live forever with him, that death will not be the end for you, he promises that that will come true. Back when Jesus was at, outside the tomb of Lazarus, he said this. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And if Jesus is risen from the dead, then you don't need to fear death as you once did. Death is not the end for you. Death doesn't have finality anymore. Death is just a transition, preparing you for the day when Jesus will call you by name and when you'll come back to life following the voice of your Savior. Third implication. Because of his resurrection, he's brought new life to us right now. He's brought new life to us right now. The resurrection of Jesus is the reason why he can make good on the promise that we could be born again, that he could take out our old heart, our sinful, broken heart of stone and give us instead a, a heart that beats for God, a heart of flesh. It's the way he can transform us from the inside out. Peter makes this connection for us. He said that you have been born again by the resurrection of Jesus. Friend, the very power that made Jesus' body come back to life and that compelled him to walk out of that tomb. That same power is brought to bear in your heart to change you to the in, from the inside out when you believe that Jesus is who he claims he is. Right, if you're a Christian this morning, that power has already been at work in your life, whether you know it or not. The moment you believed in Jesus, the only reason that happened in the first place is because that power opened your heart to respond to him the way you should. Every victory over sin, every time you've done something, 
Because you know God wants you to do it. And you want to please your heavenly father. That is that power that came forth through the resurrection in living color in your life. Friends, you have all the life in the world ahead of you. No matter how long you've been on this earth, whether you're a teenager that's only walked with Jesus for a few years, or whether you're a senior saint that's walked with him for decades and decades, you have all the life in the world in front of you. As many days as you have left on this earth to be more and more like Jesus, that life coursing through your veins, and then in all eternity to live with him with a resurrected body like his. Isn't that reason to be joyful this Christmas? Doesn't Easter Sunday make you appreciate Christmas all the more? Because the king of heaven that came to be born as a little baby in a manger lived to die for our sins and to rise and reign forever as our king. So brothers and sisters, let's worship him this Christmas. As you gather with family, as you reflect on the mystery of the incarnation, remember the mission that baby came on. And remember the cycle of death that's been broken by the one that overcame it by the resurrection. We opened right before our sermon by singing the song, Behold Our God. Listen to this stanza from it. Who has felt the nail upon his hands, bearing all the guilt of sinful man? God eternal, humbled to the grave. Jesus, Savior, risen, now to reign. Brothers and sisters, this Christmas, let your heart not be troubled. Let the peace of the risen King dwell within you. Let's pray.